From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank Joe. Last Wednesday, a staggering 99.4% of Harvard's non-academic workers decided to unionize. The new Harvard Union now represents more than 400 students working in libraries, cafes, the Cambridge Queen's Head Pub, and the university's equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging offices. It's the first primarily undergraduate union at Harvard. And across the nation, undergraduate unionization is on the rise. This week on News Talk, one of our reporters joins us to talk through it all. My name is Cami Kettles, and I cover labor for the Harvard Crimson. Thank you so much, Cam, for joining us. Earlier last week, a group of undergraduate students voted essentially to form a union of undergraduate workers. I'm curious if you could talk us through what the results were. The election that happened last week was really the culmination of a much longer process. Last May, the union effort had their NLRB hearing with the National Labor Relations Board, and they determined the size of their bargaining unit, who was included. I think in this case, who wasn't included is also important. And they also decided that the election would take place now. The voting happened over two days. There were sort of two voting blocks in the morning and the afternoon, both days. And then as soon as it hit 4 p.m., they were counting ballots by hand. And they had representatives both from the union and from Harvard's employee and labor relations department there to watch. And it quite literally was someone counted, then someone counted a second time, and then they announced the results in person. The final result was 153 votes to one in favor of unionizing, and both sides agreed that was the final result. So zooming out a little bit, could we talk about why Harvard's undergraduate workers were interested in unionization in the first place? So the original movement came out of the student labor action movement, and They have a lot of concerns, one being general workplace stability. Do they know that, you know, the workplaces are going to remain open? That was sort of a major concern that was brought up again and again. Another was that cafe workers are not able to receive tips. But I think across the board, there is the general sense that unionizing shouldn't be because there is some major grievance that couldn't be addressed otherwise. They believe that it is something that just should exist, period. And I actually think that is very consistent with the overall sentiment of young people when it comes to nationwide unionizing. Now that the official unionization effort has gone through the election, curious what campus reactions to this newly formed undergraduate workers union has been. I think there is a sense of momentum, both among undergraduates and also with building on what graduate students had already achieved. I do think that not just at Harvard, but in a lot of colleges with graduate students, the existing union infrastructure really allows undergraduate efforts to take place, both because they have help and also because sort of that's the campus environment that has already been created that's generally pro-union. You've mentioned, too, that Harvard has a graduate students union and that prior to this election in the newly formed Harvard Undergraduate Workers Union, certain undergraduate students who were working for the university also had representation under the graduate student union. What was the situation there and are they now lumped into the undergraduate student workers union? So this is the interesting part about these two unions is they're both labeled 
graduate and undergraduate, even though their bargaining units include some of both. So it's possible that an undergraduate student who, say, has a library job and is also a course assistant is part of two unions. But the real distinction is the type of work. The Harvard Undergraduate Workers Union is non-academic, so these are not class-related jobs, whereas that is pretty much the complete confines of the Graduate Student Union. The Harvard Graduate Students Union and the Harvard Undergraduate Workers Union are, in fact, sister unions. What's their relationship there? Both the Graduate Student Union and the then-campaign for primarily undergraduates voted to affiliate last spring. And what that means is that they share a leadership structure, so they share an executive committee, and it also means they share financial resources, which was really a big deal in allowing the undergraduate union to sort of form and have sort of strategic backing going through its election process. The financial structure and the executive committee, really, none of that really mattered before it had actually become a union. Now that is sort of combining a lot of the sort of collective power of the unions, but they are separate unions and will have separate contracts with the university. They are just very tied and will make strategic decisions generally together. You mentioned that this unionization effort and successful election last week came as the culmination of a larger, longer wave of organizing. Curious what that organizing has taken shape as on campus in the months leading up to the successful election last week. This specific union effort actually started in January and coincided with another campus union that launched publicly. That was the Harvard Academic Workers. And they are attempting, still attempting, to represent non-tenure track faculty who went through a long process of first gaining public awareness, making people understand what they were doing, encouraging people to sign authorization cards, which is sort of the first step. Most union efforts request voluntary recognition after they have received support through union authorization cards from 30% of their bargaining unit, and Harvard denied that. And then after Harvard denied voluntary recognition, which is pretty common among employers, they started going through the official process of organizing an official election with the National Labor Relations Board and... Really, after that, it was just getting promises that people would vote and would vote for the union, which was generally successful. So you mentioned that the university had initially denied the uh, undergraduate workers' request for voluntary recognition. Now that the undergraduate workers' union has formed, what's been the administration's response? The main thing that we look for once an election takes place and the union is ultimately successful is, is the university going to accept the results? In this case, The university has publicly stated very clearly that they're not going to challenge results. They're willing to collectively bargain. So I don't think there's going to be any challenge from now until the bargaining does take place. Obviously, collective bargaining is its own process and can get pretty contentious. It has so in the past with the graduate students. But at this moment, there's not going to be a legal challenge that they face. So now Harvard has an undergraduate workers union, and this isn't just something contained to our university. It's a trend that's happened across the nation. I'm curious if you could talk to us a little bit about the wave of undergraduate unionization across the U.S. Unionizing efforts across the country are are definitely noticing where this is happening in other places. Harvard wasn't even the only 
Undergraduate Union to Unionize Wednesday. Organizers at the University of Oregon also won a union, and they had a much, much larger bargaining unit. But the effort by Harvard undergraduates is really part of a much larger trend, the most recent of which started in 2016 when student dining workers at Grinnell College in Iowa decided to unionize. In 2022, they decided to expand that unit to all undergraduates. And they were sort of the first in recent history, although there are definitely examples of undergraduate unionization going quite a bit far back. And I actually think Harvard was actually part of that broader trend way before the Harvard Undergraduate Workers Union came into existence because course assistants and teaching fellows that are also undergraduates were already included in the Graduate Student Union when they first started bargaining. But really, most undergraduates are not in those roles, and so they were unrepresented. But quite a few undergraduate bodies have unionized across the country or in the process of unionizing now. So we now have a slate of unions on campus, each representing a different block of the campus community. For students on campus who are looking to either understand unions or potentially join one themselves, what are the next steps that they can look to now in terms of looking ahead? For students that are covered in the current bargaining unit, whether they voted or not, there are sort of two big things to look out for. The first is that the new union will begin establishing what they're going to prioritize in bargaining, so what they're going to demand, what are their no-compromise issues, and that will be established by a full-unit bargaining survey, which will be obviously distributed to the entire bargaining unit. The second thing they're going to do is establish who will actually bargain. It's unclear right now between the two which they will do first, but those are both going to matter a lot for what representation bargaining unit members have. And I actually think adding new workplaces on is something that they say they're going to start now, but that process is going to be much longer. Thank you so much, Kim, for joining us to talk through Harvard's undergraduate student unionization efforts and the successful election and formation of an undergraduate workers union last week. Thanks, Frank. Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences has instituted a new system for spring semester classes called Previous Term Course Registration. Today, two of our reporters join us to talk through how the university's faculty and administrators have responded to it. My name is Camilla Wu, and I am a social sciences reporter for the Harvard Crimson. My name is Emily Wilrich, and I'm also a social sciences reporter for the Crimson. Thank you so much. So Previous Term Course Registration. What do these words mean for the students who are looking to sign up for courses for their next semester and the faculty looking to receive those requests? Traditionally, Harvard students sign up for classes in between two semesters, but um, in May of 2022, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences have voted for students to register for classes well in advance um, between the two semester switches. It will be roughly two months in advance to the next semester that's coming. For the spring courses of 2024, stu students will start course registration on November 1st, and the deadline will be November 15th. So what does this advanced timeline mean for ultimately a faculty of arts and sciences that has to go through tons of administrative operations to place students in courses each semester? So essentially the whole timeline for the faculty is pushed up. They have to have their course canvas sites and syllabi finalized by when course registration opens on November 1st. And also their search for teaching fellows is also pushed up significantly. 
And essentially, yeah, they have to start prepping their courses earlier in the previous semester instead of during winter break. Mm -hmm. So how have faculty responded to this advanced timeline? Ultimately, ends up shifting their schedules, no? So faculty have had mixed reviews towards this pushed-up timeline. Professor Peter Berger in the German department has had a very positive view of this pushed-up timeline, thinking it gives faculty more organization in their preparation and also encourages students to more thoughtfully select their classes. On the other hand, other professors have found it a bit challenging to move up this whole timeline. Professor Ogene in the AAAS Department of African and African American Studies has mentioned that the new timeline was quite a challenge and it made it difficult to plan more logistically challenging courses, such as a course that he's planning that has a lot of guest speakers that he's trying to bring in and organize, and he's finding it challenging to try and select these guest speakers and convince them to come in so early before that classes actually start. So on the whole, it's received mixed reviews from faculty. Other faculty are rather ambivalent about the change. They're not sure what it's going to bring and if it's going to be useful yet, and are sort of developing a wait-and-see approach, where they're preparing early for their classes and just hoping for the best um, and that it will be a more effective system. So how have teaching fellows, essentially the uh, members of the teaching staff who are assisting professors in carrying out the course, how have they responded to the change? Yeah, so I think just like how it was with the professors, teaching fellows also share some mixed opinions. For example, for chemistry teaching fellow Jahan Nan, he said that for chemistry courses that run several labs and sections, the earlier course registration is very helpful to allow the teaching team to assemble better prior to the start of classes because by knowing the number of students that will be in a class way ahead of time is extremely helpful. Um, they will have a better idea of how many teaching fellows they exactly need for the different labs and sections, and they can better accommodate the students. And if any changes happen, there is a cushion period to adapt to those changes. And I quote Jahanan saying that before this new previous term course registration happened, the earliest sem- this past semester, the teaching team was usually assembled only one week before the start of term, and they were basically thrown into the course. Generally, from the teaching fellows that we've talked to, and again, this is just a sample of all the teaching fellows at Harvard, but they've tended to really support the decision. So in terms of getting students into courses, we don't just have professors and teaching fellows. We also have administrators and advising staff that are helping out with this entire process. How have they responded to the change? The new timeline has posed a bit of a challenge for concentration advisors, professors, or like administrative people in concentrations. And this has posed a challenge because sophomores have now, under the new system, been required to declare their concentration on October 25th, which is earlier than the normal concentration declaration deadline. And then since course registration opens on November 1st, it can be tricky for concentration advisors, particularly in large departments, to meet with all of the new concentrators about their courses before course registration. So I talked to a professor in the computer science department, Professor Adam Hesterberg, and he mentioned that it's been difficult, like particularly in such a large department, for advisors to be able to meet with all the new concentrators before course registration, and so they've sort of like abandoned that goal, essentially. But he hopes concentration advisors will still be able to meet with students maybe over the break and help them revise their courses as needed. One thing that was previously available to students was something called shopping week, where essentially for a period of time, students would be able to come into any course that they would be potentially interested in taking, sit down, check out the course, and potentially enroll in the course. Faculty then essentially had to spend a period of time not knowing uh, whether the students in their class would actually end up taking their class for the entire semester. I'm curious how faculty members have responded to shifts in the shopping week. 
So it's varied between faculty members. It's sort of like a theme that we were seeing. But some faculty members came out in strong support of Shopping Week and really sort of empathized with students. Many mentioned that Shopping Week provided a great opportunity for students to try out different courses that they maybe wouldn't have initially thought to register in. And I think that's a real loss for students' sort of flexibility. However, other professors have sort of mentioned that while they sympathize with students and they're wanting to have the flexibility of Shopping Week, it just makes it so much easier for faculty to be able to have a better sense in advance of who's going to be in their classes. And they really think that this helps them in their teaching teams and their teaching fellows plan the courses better in advance. Some faculty members also urge students that, you know, while formal Shopping Week is gone, they can still sort of take on an informal Shopping Week of their own in the first week of classes and try out a few different classes that they're interested in and maybe drop ones that they're not. So what do these changes at the end of the day actually mean in terms of concrete shifts moving forward? From now on, there will no longer be a shopping week. But as mentioned before, students can have their own informal shopping week to get to know their classes better. Also, students should know that course registration will open on November 1st and the deadline to sign up for classes will be November 15th. Thank you so much, Camilla and Emily, for joining us to talk through previous term course registration and what that means from faculty. Thank you so much, Frank, and for everyone who's picking their courses, wish you good luck. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Joe. This episode was produced by Yael S. Goldstein, Melanie Sanchez, Zadina A. Akwai, and Frank S. Joe. Our multimedia chairs are Julian J. Giordano and Joey Huang. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Our president is Kara J. Chang. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk.